For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, essayist Adiba Nelson returns with a love letter she wants to share with women everywhere. Hear from two scientists who are driving a University of Arizona project to measure climate change in the Southern Ocean. And meet Adam Mentor, who followed the tide of used and recycled goods from a goodwill in Tucson to the African country of Ghana for his book, Second Hand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. From these perspectives, she's been able to watch many other women who are living, giving, and growing. And in this month dedicated to women's history, she has a message she'd like to send loud and clear. Adiba Nelson is an independent contributor to this show, and her commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona public media. I'm Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. Dear woman listening to my voice, I wrote you a love letter because, well, I love you. You make me birthday cake happy when I share some crazy life truth and I get an email that basically says, girl, me too. Every time I get an email like that, I quietly say to myself, we are not unicorns. So thank you for giving me the strength to continue sharing my truths. For that, I wrote you a love letter. And it goes a little something like this. Hey, beautiful. Yes, you. You sitting there listening to this. Do you know how fabulous you are? Have you any idea how much more delicious the world is because you're in it? No one laughs out loud in inappropriate places quite like you do. I know you do this because I do it. And remember, we're not unicorns. If I'm going down for laughing too loud, honey, you're coming with me. No one slides through this world trying to be confident and cool and full of self-love when the world is hell-bent on tearing you down quite like you. I see you. I see you every day wishing you were skinny like Giselle or stacked like Beyonce. I see you wishing your hair was straight, not curly, or curly and not straight. I see you wishing you were lighter, darker, more bronze, less orange. I see you, trans woman, wishing you didn't have to have the pronoun talk with yet another person. I see you and I have something to tell you. You are perfect. In all your resplendent, sparkle bomb, delirious, imperfect glory, you are so magnificently perfect. The gap in your teeth, your adorable underbite, your subtly sexy overbite, the ears that stick out a little bit too far, the belly that masquerades as a second trimester trophy but is really a delicious food baby, the flat booty, the rotund booty, the F cups and the double A's. The girl in the wheelchair, the girl with the bedazzled crutches, the girl who will never hear my voice and the girl who will never see my face. All of you, perfect. Even your imperfections are perfect because they are perfectly tailored to you and have played a crucial part in shaping your core. No one can take away the core of who you are. 
And honey, to quote Rihanna, your core, your soul shines bright like a diamond. You survive teasing, bullying, eating too much, eating too little, not eating at all, divorce, breakups, deaths of parents, deaths of children, deaths of pets you loved like children, children you love but sometimes desperately need a break from, cheating partners, and partners you want to cheat on. You've even survived domestic violence and mental illness and suicide attempts. And you're still here. Beautiful, sparkly, smiling through your burning eyes because of running mascara, imperfectly perfect you. God, I applaud you for being here. I applaud you for giving life the five fingers of death and deciding to show up for whatever the day brings every single day. I applaud you for saying something's not right. I need to talk to someone and seeking help. And I applaud you for attempting to take the first step on your body love journey by simply saying, I am enough. If you haven't said it, go to the closest mirror right now, look yourself dead in the eye and say it. I am enough. Say it until you start to feel the change in your heart. I am enough. Believe me, you'll feel it. For these reasons and so many more, my God, so many more, I applaud you. I love you and I thank you. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being vulnerable with me, trusting me with your secrets, and allowing me to see you for the beautiful, magnificent, splendid being you are. You can find more of Adiba Nelson on her website, The Full Nelson. The music was by Shekinah. It may be surprising to hear that the University of Arizona has a presence in the Southern Ocean. The Southern Ocean Climate and Carbon Modeling Program, or SOCOM, is a $21 million collaboration with the National Science Foundation. It has taken my next guests all the way from the UA Department of Geosciences to the decks of research vessels, sailing on often stormy waters where the water temperature can be as low as 28 degrees. They're part of a cutting-edge project to study changes in ocean chemistry and global temperature. Becky Beedling is a graduate student who has published papers based on this research, working closely with her advisor, Associate Professor Joellen Russell. You'll hear Russell sing Beedling's praises in a moment, but we'll start with Becky Beedling. So my undergrad was actually in chemistry and biology, and I minored in math. And I got to my last year of my undergrad, and I always thought I was going to go into something like chemical engineering. And I actually started thinking about it. I was like, okay, what, you know, what am I really passionate about? And it's about understanding the earth and understanding how our climate works. So I was like, okay, well, I have a degree in chemistry and biology and math. I can definitely apply that to climate. How fast are things changing in your field? Like, let's look at the six-year window since Becky came to the U of A. How do you measure these six years as opposed to your career in this field before that? Uh, six years ago, we did not routinely run Earth system models, which is not just a climate model, but it's all of the carbon, biogeochemistry of the ocean, biology of the land, trees, and uh, everything up into fish, and the carbon in the atmosphere and in the ocean, etc. We didn't have a carbon monitoring satellite. 
OCO2 did not exist. Uh, we didn't have models that could handle the carbon. We didn't have robot floats that could measure the carbon in the ocean. Our field is accelerating and we're trying to help push it because we know that the ocean is changing really quickly. We're concerned about things like half of the Great Barrier Reef that took a million years to grow. Half of it died in the last three years. If you're not interested in a reef, might, I might be able to interest you in Norfolk, our largest naval base. Um, projections of sea level rise uh, predict that we have roughly 20 years before that will be significantly underwater. Unless we do extraordinary things, this is what is coming. Having somebody like Becky, who's done stuff like teach Sky School up here at the, in the Catalinas at Mount Lemon, and she is a go-getter. She's going to both make the science and communicate the science. And you know what that says for oldies like me? The future is in great hands. We're going to be okay because these young people are coming. And when we drop in the traces after a long career and can't go any further, they will step right over us and up that hill. When Joellen was mentioning some of the tools that you use to create these models, she mentioned robot floats. And I think this is a really interesting part of your research. It's something dramatic that our listeners might enjoy hearing about. So tell us a little bit about what kind of a tool the robot float is for you. They don't necessarily look like floats. It's kind of these big, you know, four foot, five foot tall, yellow cylindrical bodies, tubes, essentially, I guess, uh, that we uh, drop into the ocean. And it's, it's collecting data that allows us to understand the salinity of the ocean, the temperature of the ocean, which gives us the density structure. And also now with the, the new floats as part of the SOCOM project, it's allowing us to look at for the first time carbon, pH, uh, different biogeochemical kind of tracers. My research and why I came to work with Joellen is I kind of want to bridge the gap between modeling and observations. So floats allow us to observe our ocean along with ship-based measurements and other kind of measurements. And why I think that's critically important because I'm very passionate about using climate models to get a better understanding of what our future holds so we can be better prepared for it, you know, this century or next and we can use those observations that are collected from these floats to actually benchmark our climate model. So we can say, okay, you know, this climate model simulates these properties in this region. You know, let's compare that to how we actually observe it. And so we can get an idea of how well, you know, these climate models simulate this. And that drives us to understand mechanisms, first of all, uh, with respect to ocean dynamics. But it drives us to build you know, better models. And when you hear someone talking about what the future may hold, what the global temperature is, it's a result of those climate models. And those climate models are getting better and better and more accurate because we know more about our observed world and we're making that comparison. About how many robot floats are part of the project that you are engaged in? And how many of these floats maybe have you deployed yourself in this line of research? And do you ever have to retrieve them from the ocean? How does that work in terms of getting the data back? Two summers ago, I was out on a cruise going from... Um, and when you say cruise, people are going to imagine a swimming pool and a wet bar. Yeah, no swimming pool, no wet bar. Uh, <laughs> I guess a, a research vessel, <laughs> a big ship going from Sydney, Australia to Papiete, Tahiti. Uh, I think I deployed about six of those uh, on, on that cruise. And that, so we deploy these floats, which means we send them over, we lower them over the side of a ship. And they have a bladder in them, which basically allows them to go up and down throughout the water column. And no, we never have to retrieve them because when they come to the surface, 
all the data that they collected is now pinged back to a satellite. It's ready, essentially, within hours. Someone can go in and look at the data from that particular float. And I think the battery is, I think they roughly last five to seven years. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah. How many are deployed globally to to make up the project? There are uh, project? three thousand floats out that are Argo floats that just do the physics, the temperature and salinity of the ocean. But the big issue is there aren't enough ships to actually measure the changes that are going on because it's going too fast over too big an area. The oceans are seventy two percent of the Earth's surface. We can't measure it by ship. Post Cold War, 1989, we basically have had fewer ship days almost every year because we're mothballing ships and we're not replacing them. So if oceanographers like Becky and I want to make progress, we have to leave something behind that's going to do the work for us. So we pick robot floats. We're also using satellites, et cetera. But this is a critical part of expanding the observing system without costing us more money. It costs about a hundred grand for two days of ship time, which will get you six profiles at maximum. Six all the way down and all the way up, you know, gathering water and making measurements. Okay. A robot flows will cost less than that hundred grand and we'll get you 250 profiles. Becky, share with us some of the conclusions that this research is leading you to draw. The major thing is from the SOCOM project, I mean, we're finally getting a view of the biogeochemistry of the Southern Ocean. And one of the big conclusions we're, we're seeing is, you know, how important this ocean is for the global CO2 concentration. So the fluxes, the exchange of heat and gas that occurs there is really kind of what is driving our global climate. And I think that's going to be one of the big takeaways from SOCOM. You know, everyone's always talked about how important the Southern Ocean is. And we know it from, you know, previous observations and we know it from climate modeling simulations. But now we're actually, we have a large number of observations and now. we're watching it happen. And we're, we're actually watching it happen. We're, we're seeing that the Southern Ocean is driving our climate and it's essentially giving us, yeah, you know, a window into what the future holds. If we can understand how our Southern Ocean works now, and uh, that'll give us a better idea, you know, if our climate warms and our ocean changes, what does that mean for the future? Becky, I'd like for you to see if you can provide us with a quick snapshot to end on of a time when all this information and research you're doing, all of this science and, and your own experience kind of came together in a way that was memorable for you. So this brings one uh, particular moment to mind. It was actually the last cruise that I was on. It was the last day of sampling, you know, so essentially, you know, your last work day. There's 48 hours maybe until we hit Tahiti. And I remember getting done for that day. My shift was done at noon because I worked midnight to noon. And I remember I just, you know, it's the first time we are like, I, I have nothing, you know, I, my job, my job is essentially done. So I went out to the bow of the ship, the front of the ship. I'm just standing there, you know, looking out into the ocean. And I'm just like, you know, I've been on this boat for 46 days. Prior to this, I had just been studying the ocean, you know, the simulated ocean. I'd been sitting in front of computers uh, looking at, you know, thousands of lines of code. You know, you can understand the ocean that way. But, you know, I never really understood the ocean until I spent, you know, 46 days at sea, waking up at midnight every night and, you know, going out there and just seeing kind of like the black of the abyss. And you're just kind of like this little dot just like rolling in this essentially huge monster. And it really brought together, you know, kind of the magnitude of what I'm doing. 
I remember being so moved by it. I actually went inside and wrote this long poem. <laughs> and actually, I think Joellen has a copy of it. Basically, you know, I used to understand the ocean in, you know, lines of code and equations. That's how it spoke to me. But now the ocean has spoke to me for like 46 days and waves. Anyway, it was it was honestly really powerful. And I'm looking forward to, you know, in the future, hopefully getting out there again and kind of, you know, having that feeling of everything coming full circle and the magnitude of what I'm working on. My guests were oceanographers Becky Beedling and Professor Joellen Russell from the UA Department of Geosciences. Whether it's finding a perfect pair of already broken-in blue jeans, a rare movie on VHS or maybe Laserdisc, or a lamp that no one else could ever love as much as you, thrift store shopping holds appeal for many people. How those goods ended up at your local resale shop, or where they may be going next, may seem mysterious, but it's a process that journalist Adam Mentor has come to understand well. He wrote Junkyard Planet, Travels in the Billion-Dollar Trash Trade, about the problems and opportunities that can be found in other people's stuff. His latest book, Second Hand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale, is much like visiting a series of thrift stores around the world. You cannot predict what you might find. Adam Mentor's journey began at the donation drop-off of a Goodwill store right here in Tucson. This book, you know, it's a travel book, it's a business book, but ultimately it's, it's a personal book, it's a memoir, and, and it really arose from uh, the passing of my mother and uh, the need for my sister and I to figure out what to do with the things that she had left behind. And, you know, some of her things I wanted and some of her things my sister wanted, but everybody goes through this, whether it was a parent, you know, a partner, um, a friend, um, you're left with stuff that you don't want. It may be something really nice, but but you've got to figure out where to go with it. And, you know, my sister and I kind of went back and forth saying, you take the China. No, you take the China. No, you take the China. And at the end of it, we decided, you know, we're going to take the China uh, to Goodwill. And, you know, out of that experience, I, I started to kind of realize just how much we invest personally with our identities into the things that we own. And that became kind of, you know, a painful process because I, I had to recognize that, you know, um, my, my memories and my feelings towards my mother weren't just the experiences we had, but I was associating with her things. And so in letting go of those things, her things, my things, I was sort of letting go a little bit of a piece of her. And as I reported this book, I went around the United States. I spent time in Japan with companies and with counselors who help people clean out their homes. And, uh, you know, if they're downsizing or if a relative has just passed away. And I saw that process repeating with them where they would say to somebody, look, you know, you don't need that wedding china anymore. And the person who owned the wedding china would look at it and say, but you know, I've had it for 50 years. I was going to keep it forever. It represents my marriage. And so um, that became a very personal side of this book, this idea that, you know, we are the things that we accumulate, but, but to some extent, uh, we all have to let go of those things. And you mentioned one practice that's available in Japan where while you're attending the memorial service, a team will actually go to the house of the deceased person and take care of their belongings. There's something uh, yeah. incredibly efficient about the sound of that. 
you actually have because it's become such a, a big um, activity and uh, and business, frankly, uh, in Japan, this cleaning out of people's homes, that you actually have um, uh, temples and monks becoming involved in it. And, and in Japan, you know, there's a whole different level to this. For some people, at least, objects that have been used for a very long time in Japan are, are, are seen as having sort of taken on their own spirit, if you will. And so there becomes a, a spiritual component, almost a religious component, uh, uh, to this process. So it is very efficient, and it, and it does, again, give us insights into how wrapped up we are in, in sort of this, these uh, material things that we have. Can you contrast something that you found that it was radically different than the United States? Maybe something we could learn from, maybe not, but just contrast uh, an experience or something you saw in a foreign nation with what goes on here in America with the secondhand strata. Sure, sure. Well, uh, immediately what comes to mind is our electronics, our older electronics. In the United States and in other developed countries, we tend to think of, say, a five-year-old television or you know, a three-year-old phone or, or whatever gadget it is you have, we tend to think of it as, as e-waste, um, you know, a term which connotates that that old object uh, can't be used anymore uh, and that it needs to be recycled and, 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 and it should be recycled safely. It shouldn't be sent off, say, to an emerging market country where somebody might use unsafe means to recycle it. Um, and, and what I found in the course of, of reporting this book, and especially in Ghana, uh, where I spent quite a bit of time time uh, for the latter chapters of the book is that the definition of waste between countries um, really differs. And, and, the, and the particular incident that comes to mind uh, took place in a town in northern Ghana called Savalugu, um, which is a very small town, um, not very affluent at all. And uh, I met there a television repairman by the name of Ibrahim Al-Hassan. And, and when I met him, he was at work on a old tube television. You know, in, in Tucson, you don't have too many people watching tube televisions anymore, but it was probably a 35-year-old uh, Sony. And he was repairing it. And that Sony had been imported into Ghana years ago, and it had been used and reused and sold and resold. It had finally broken, and so he had be, was being paid the equivalent of about $5 to fix it. And I don't recall what precisely was wrong with it, but I do remember what he was doing. He wasn't just fixing it, but he was turning this television uh, that was a manual, you know, which we don't do in, in the United States anymore, where you literally manually change the channel by turning a knob. And he was adding a remote control to it, which it had never had before. And I thought this was just really fascinating because for a number of reasons. One, uh, that old 35-year-old television, because of the income levels in Savalugu, he didn't see it as waste. He saw it as a repairable asset. And on top of that, he had extraordinary levels of skill and knowledge uh, that we've really lost in the United States and willingness uh, to repair that television. So that's what he was doing. And so uh, we always hear the, you know, the phrase, one man's you know, trash is another man's treasure. Um, to some extent, that's true. But I don't think people fully internalize that you know, on a national level. I mean, I think we all sort of internally 
say, well, my definition of trash is trash. And so when you come across um, not just one person, but, but an entire industry, and across West Africa, um, secondhand is the retail industry. There's very little new retail. You really come to understand that our definitions of what is waste, what could and should be sold and bought, um, are really specific to you know an affluent time and place. But there are many, many different ways of looking at pound uh, waste and, and reuse uh, around the world. Adam, you mentioned how people rarely give a second thought to items once they leave the trunk of their car and go through the donation door at a Goodwill or a Salvation Army. But what about recycling? It's the same thing. People don't think about what happens after they put things in that blue bin. But what did you find is really happening? Prior to writing this book, I've spent uh, uh, roughly two decades covering the global recycling industry, um, and and you're absolutely right. I you know people don't think about what happens to their recycling once they put it in the blue bin. I, I sort of um, equate it at times to uh, you know people who eat meat, their relationship to it. You know they don't think about what happens in the slaughterhouse. They just uh, pay attention to what's on their plate. Right. Um, you know, just as I indicated, you know, with the secondhand trade, um, you know, there are vast global trade networks. Certainly there's trade networks in, in the United States and North America, but there's vast trade networks, um, people demanding the recycling in your recycling bin. Um, and the reason they want it is they want to make things from it. Nothing is recyclable unless somebody wants to manufacture something new from it. So I always tell people, you know, you want a healthy uh, manufacturing economy if you want recycling because, uh, you know, that, that old uh, aluminum can, those newspapers, those cardboard boxes, if, if Amazon doesn't want to make new cardboard boxes, you know, those old cardboard boxes are, are garbage. They're not recycling. And, and that, you know, that repeats around the world. And, and certainly there uh, have been problems in recent years um, with shifts in the Chinese economy because China uh, was and, and still is the world's largest recycling and they were importing large amounts of, of American recycling um, so that they could manufacture from it. But generally, um, if something goes into your recycling bin and it can be you know, made into something else, um, somebody out there is going to try and get their hands on it and make something from it. So it's a, it's a fairly optimistic story. I look at recycling not necessarily as an environmental good, though it certainly is one. Um, as somebody who's reported on it for years, I look at it as a commodity that you know, competes against you know, uh, stands of forest to make paper or giant holes in the ground to make aluminum or, or, you know, oil rigs that, you know, drill for oil so that they can make plastics. I look at it as a commodity business. And so long as there are demands out there for commodities, you know, the, the recycling industry is going to exist. I like how you mentioned in one part that uh, sleeper couches, those hide-a-beds, are, are death in the uh, secondhand industry. They're d- difficult and unsafe to move, and nobody wants them. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants them. Yeah, it's true. Uh, uh, so if you're buying a, a sleeper, um, you know, uh, try and buy one secondhand because if somebody has one in their thrift shop, they'd love to get rid of it. Though they'll, they'll probably try to avoid getting one in the thrift shop uh, in the first place. Adam Mentor's latest book is Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale, published by Bloomsbury. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. 
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.